All right, Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Um, I would encourage you, if you've got a Bible, please turn there. We will make our way through this verse by verse. This is our practice at Crosspoint. If you did not bring a Bible, there's a couple back tables there. They're bi- paperback Bibles. Get up, grab one of those, or go to cpwp.life, swipe over the second card, it says message notes. Anything that's up on the screen this morning is listed there, including this morning's text, and there's space to be able to take notes. And so as I read this, I want us to just hear the context of this. This is a story about a man named Philip, all right, who was commissioned as, as one of the seven that were raised up to help deal with some of the issues as the church was growing. And we know that he, through persecution, he ends up in Samaria. We looked at that last week. And now the Lord is going to lead him into a new place because God's desire is for the gospel to continue to go forth. We sometimes get comfortable and think, okay, we got this, this is good right here. Can we just keep this going? And the Lord's like, nope, I want to keep pushing forward. The gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus' church. It is on the move. And if you wonder if it's on the move or not, you have to look no further than just like we're gathering here this morning. This is testimony to the fact that Jesus has been building his church and not just here at Crosspoint, but literally all over the world. All right, so we're gonna see the way that this continues and how it challenges us and encourages us to be part of this work. So as I read this, would you go ahead and stand as I read these verses this morning? Acts chapter eight, verses 26 to 40. It says this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise, go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And it says, and he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. And now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generations for for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, well, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, Acts chapter 8, I mean really throughout the book of Acts, but Acts chapter 8 I think is this really interesting kind of exposition, encouragement of what it looks like to bear witness about King Jesus, to see people come to faith. And this is really one of the the first accounts that we get of sort of a one-on-one evangelistic encounter. Up until this point, there'd been lots of like out in the open, like preaching, crowds gathering, people being healed. And so there'd been some one-on-one elements, I'm sure, but most of what had been recorded are kind of these, these you know, kind of massive, like the crowd is gathered, 3,000 people get saved, those sort of, sort of moments. And now we get this really interesting insight into sort of what does a one-on-one encounter look like? And so there's this evangelism that's taking place. And here's what I want to ask you this morning as we think through this. Like, what comes to mind, or maybe what do you experience when you hear the word evangelism, when you 
anticipate, oh, the pastor's going to talk to me about being an evangelist. Like, what starts to happen, like, in your heart and in your soul? I mean, maybe some of you are like, awesome, can't wait. Been waiting for this, this message. I just love to do this. And so we can take notes from you. Like, we'd love to chat about that. But I'm guessing for most of us, there can be, uh-oh, like, Okay, maybe there's a little bit of guilt. Maybe there's a little bit of um, uh, sweaty palms. You're just like, I don't know what to do. Like, I, I've tried that, that once, all right? Um, you know, I just yelled at this person on the street and then they walked away. Like, I don't know what your encounters with evangelism have been like. Maybe you've been the recipient of some evangelism that maybe we wouldn't agree with the tactics. Maybe you've been encouraged to engage in, in those, those ways. I don't know what comes to mind, but my guess is there's lots of questions surrounding it. There's lots of ways that we get confused, and we know kind of in the back of our mind until somebody, always in the back of our mind, but maybe not at the forefront, until somebody brings it up, and we're like, okay, what does it look like to engage? And my hope is this morning that you will be encouraged in your calling, and I don't stand up here this morning. I do not have the mic because I'm the resident expert at evangelism and you guys just need to follow me and just because I'm amazing at it. This is an area of, of much growth, uh, much, I, I find it in some ways much easier to do this than it is sometimes to sit across from somebody one-on-one and be talking about the reality of the gospel in, in their life. So I recognize that there can be some difficulties and yet, by God's grace, the times he's allowed me to share the gospel, and what, whether the person comes to faith in that moment or not, there is a joy that comes with it. There is a feeling of, Lord, you, you are using me for your purposes, and the Lord wants that for us, and he has chosen to work in and through us. And so I hope that this morning, for one, uh, I want to read you this quote where we really sort of embrace the reality of our humanness in this. Like, there, there isn't this call to perfection in this. And we're going to see, it's ultimately not up to you and me anyway, all right? I hope we'll, we'll see that and unpack that in this text that we just read. But let me read you this book. This is by uh, Rebecca Pippert in a book called um, Out of the Salt Shaker. And it's really this this book I've been reading lately that's about uh, evangelism. But look at this quote. It's a little bit lengthy, but she says this. Our problem in evangelism is not that we don't have enough information. It is that we don't know how to be ourselves. We forget we are called to be witnesses to what we have seen and know, not to what we don't know. The key on our part is authenticity and obedience, not a doctorate in theology. We haven't grasped that it really is okay for us to be who we are when we are with seekers, even if we don't have all the answers to their questions or if our knowledge of Scripture is limited. She says the problem actually stems from our great difficulty in believing that God is glorified in our utter humanity rather than our spiritually programmed responses. Most of us fear who we are inside just isn't enough, so we cover up our honest questions and doubts, thinking we won't sound spiritual. But in doing so, we forfeit our most important asset in evangelism. She says it's our real person. Not to accept our humanness means we lose our point of authentic contact with the world. I find this to be a very helpful and encouraging as we talk about what can be a difficult topic sometimes of just realizing like we're going to stumble. We will not get, there's no perfect way to to do this. All right. Um, Jesus did it perfectly. Other than him, nobody else has. All right. And so even in this, this text this morning, like you look at it, it's like, yeah, okay, Philip, apparently he was pretty good at, yeah, I mean, there's some things that, but also we're going to see the way that the Lord brought him to the spot. The Lord was preparing this, this person. Philip simply got to be the last person in the line where that, that person finally moved from death to life and the Lord used him. I'm sure he was encouraged, all right? But it 
wasn't on Philip. This is not a story of Philip is awesome. Look at the ways that God used Philip. Go be like Philip. Amen. Let's go be the church. That's not the call, all right? There's this call to embrace like, hey, I'm broken. I'm flawed. I'm going to share with you about Jesus. And I still got my own questions. I've got my own doubts. I got things that still confuse me. But I get to tell you about what he's done. There are things I certainly don't know. But what if we started there in that sort of spot and rested in the fact that evangelism is really God's initiative more so than it is yours? Meaning like he's the one who's at work and he's chosen to work in and through us. And there is a call to obedience in that, but ultimately it doesn't, it's not our efforts, all right? People are saved by grace, all right? It's the grace that saves them in the whole process. It's grace through and through. And so look with me at verses 26 to 29, just to set the context for this, sort of maybe to alleviate some tension right, you know, as we, right out of the gate as we get going with this this morning. God is the caller. God is the active agent. Jesus is building his church. He has sent his spirit. And we see that demonstrated here in Acts chapter eight. So it begins, verse 26, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. You see God's initiative and God's leading. Drop down to verse 29. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. I mean, even it gives this little detail in there, like they're in the desert. He tells them to go out into the desert and then they just happen as the story continues to come upon some water. I mean, all of this is just a way to say, God has got this. We're gonna see God's sovereignty. The man happens to be reading the scroll of Isaiah. He happens to be in what we would call the 53rd chapter. He happens to be talking or reading through something he doesn't understand about the suffering servant, which is if you were ever gonna pick a passage out of the Old Testament that's just like teed up for like how you can get from there to Jesus, it's this passage. Don't tell me that's just a coincidence. I mean, God is all over this. God has got this. God is saving. And we just get to rest in that and be used by him, certainly. But let's not freak out about evangelism and think it's on you. That someday, you know, somebody's going to be like, oh, like, uh, you, you didn't say the right words. You stumbled through your sentences. You should have said it in this order. You forgot this, this point. No, God can choose to work in any and all circumstances. He doesn't He doesn't even need us, but he chooses to work through us for our joy. Evangelism is about our joy and then having other people experience more of this joy. So let me just ask you as we get into this, like with this topic, who are we really functionally trusting in? Are you trusting in you and your ability and your theological knowledge? And we're not anti any of that. Like there's a call to learn and to engage, but ultimately, are you trusting in God? Are you trusting in Jesus as him building his church? Are you trusting in yourself? There's a number of passages that we could go to, but one that comes to mind here, Ephesians chapter two. Look at these words from the apostle Paul in verses four to five. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So the human condition, apart from Jesus, is dead. There's nobody that picks God, chooses God. God is the the one who breathes new life, gives us a new heart that might actually beat for him and then we respond in faith and even that faith lest we get full of ourselves as we would continue to read in chapter two of Ephesians says is a gift of God all of it is a gift it's all grace by grace you have been saved and anyone that comes to saving faith it's because God's been at work so if there's any bit of you that gets puffed up and like I'm an amazing evangelist I lead all these people to the Lord like you've been used by God but he didn't need you there's no reason for us to get a big head about this all right And there's also no reason for us to fear because your identity in Christ is rock solid. And so 
you say some things and you get rejected? What if Philip had run up to the Ethiopian and the Ethiopian just said, chariot, go faster, all right, and just sped away? And like, Philip would have been faithful. He would not have been, oh, he's, he's just not a really good evangelist. You know, he just get better at his chariot ministry, right? That's not what anybody would have said. It's God. All right, so now let's look at this. This is really fascinating things. And my hope in this text is if you're a follower of Jesus, there's a call as an evangelist. But there's also a beautiful picture of the need of humanity. And so whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, there's stuff in this text for you. So maybe you came in, you're like, I don't believe any of this. Why am I going to go be an evangelist for it? I, I get that. But I hope you'll see, and I hope all of us will see, even as followers of Jesus, that there is something in the human heart that's always looking, like always longing for more. And we see that with the Ethiopian. Look at verses 27 to 28. It says this. And so he says he rose and he went. So Philip's obedient here. And he says, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So let me just give a quick snapshot here. There's probably more that we could unpack, but here's a few details that are in the text. All right. For one, he's an Ethiopian, tells us that. Um, this means a couple of things. It means for one, um, for him to get to Jerusalem, he had a nice little, I mean, better than being on foot, but this chariot ride, all right, was still somewhere over a thousand miles to get from where he was to where he was going to in Jerusalem, all right? It also tells us, which in that time, in that place, that portion of the world was referred to as the ends of the earth. And so if you were to go back, and we looked at this last week, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, starting right where they are, in Judea, surrounding area, Samaria, which was a big shock to people because the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along. And we saw that at the beginning of chapter 8, the first part of it, it moves out to Samaria. And then it says to the ends of the earth. This is the way that God is communicating to us. He is pushing across all boundaries. This would have been a man that was very different than Philip. Here's Philip as this Jewish man, and he's now encountering this black African from Ethiopia. Like, there were all sorts of cultural, ethnic boundaries here, and you see the gospel going forth. You see that there's this dividing wall of hostilities being torn down and that the gospel breaks through. So that's one thing that we see about this Ethiopian. The other thing, a couple other details, it tells us that he worked in the court, he's a court official of the queen, and did you notice it says he was in charge of all her treasure, it means he was the CFO to the queen. He was the one that was in charge of the finances, of the budget. He took care of it all. So for one, this man is very educated. He's very talented. He's very powerful. I mean, he has achieved everything in life in many regards. He is at the absolute top. Unless he was royalty himself, he's gotten about as high as one can get in his position. So he has also, and he, he's, apparently he's very wealthy, all right? I don't know if you know about this, but the, the chariots back then, like not everybody had one of those, all right? So to be riding in a chariot, to have a driver taking you to this place, this man was very, very wealthy, all right? So he's powerful, he's wealthy, he's well-educated, he's very knowledgeable. The fact that he even has a scroll, like most villages in that time would be just ecstatic to own a portion of the scriptures. He's got this whole scroll. Like that's a very valuable commodity that he has. So we're learning some details about, about this man. And we also learn that he's spiritually, though he's seeking, he's traveled over a thousand miles to get to Jerusalem. 
Now, here's where the story gets really, really interesting. And it ties into this other detail that's there. And you're like, we haven't talked about that yet. He's a eunuch. So here's what would have taken place. In that time, in, in that particular context, in that place, the role that he has, if you, you're either born with, like, you've got royal blood, or if you wanted to be a servant, like, if you wanted to get up as high as you possibly could and be near the king or the, or the queen, in this case, the, the queen, a way to guard the integrity of things, the way to, to guard, kind of protect the, the queen from people, is that men would say, okay, you want this position, all right, you have to get castrated, that's what this is talking about, okay? So you imagine you're like jumping on, like I'm looking for a new job, you're reading through the job description, oh cool, you know, vacation time looks great, benefits look great, I can do this job, oh in the fine print, one must get cash, oh I, I don't know man, like I gotta think about that one for a moment, right? Like there's this level of commitment and this man has made the decision that he's all in. Now think about it for a moment, that sounds crazy, you're like I can't believe you would choose that and yet, how many of us sacrifice everything for career? I wish I had more relationships. I wish I had a closer walk with God. I wish I had this or, or, or that. And the fact is we're just so driven to perform and succeed. He's willing to literally go through this mutilation of his body in order to achieve what he wants career-wise. So on the one hand, you look at this like this is crazy. And on the other, if we're honest, it's not so different from us. He is driven, and yet, in all of his success, what do we know? He's willing to travel over a 1,000 miles because he somehow is having this spiritual longing, this awakening. We don't know what's going on, but if he's willing to travel that far, right? Like, some of you are patting yourself on the back because you got out of bed this morning and made it to church, like the 3.2 miles that it was, right? Like, and I'm glad you're here, but... This guy, I mean, we're talking weeks, if months, whatever, to get this far, would have left his good job behind just to go, I gotta get to Jerusalem. I don't know why, but there's something there. He's becoming what would be called a God-fearer. Like, he's starting to believe, he's, he's wondering, if, is there more out there? So he goes on this spiritual quest. It all sounds amazing, except here's what would have happened. We have to picture this man riding back on his chariot. He is not elated. He is not excited. He is not just rejoicing. This is an amazing trip. I can't wait. And he's throwing up pictures on Instagram just showing about his time in the temple. This is not what would have happened because he would have made it all the way there. And guess what he would have found? You're not welcome here. Not just because of his ethnicity, not because of his culture, but because he was a eunuch, you were not allowed to participate in the temple gathering, in the worship. And so can you imagine traveling all that way and then to find out there's a group of people that are like, you're not wanted, you're not welcome, we don't take your kind here, you need to pack it up, get back in your chariot and head home. After all of that, and so we need to feel this in this moment, he is broken, he is dejected. He's trying to make sense. He's reading this scroll like, what in the world? Like, I thought God was doing something in my life. That's where we find him. I was thinking about this. Like, how do, how do you illustrate this? And I remember um, there's this, this scene. Um, I'm like, all right, so let me talk Michigan sports because there's got to be some sadness in there, right? Um, and so uh, as a high schooler, it was 1993. I just can figure my age there. It's 42 in case you're wondering. Okay. And um, 1993, I think I was a junior in high school. I'm watching the Michigan basketball team. They've made it to the finals. It's year two of the Fab Five, all right? And they're playing the University of North Carolina. They are down by two points. Chris Weber grabs, some of you know where this is going, all right? Grabs the rebound, begins to head up the court. He did travel, by the way, but anyway, that's beside the point, all right? And so he's heading up the, the court, 11 seconds on the clock, down two. They've already called the play in their previous timeout about what would happen in this situation, all right? And how they're gonna run this, this spot, who's gonna get the three points. 
pointer, all those sorts of things. And yet, in this moment, you guys remember this story, he gets to the bench, a couple of defenders are collapsing in on him to trap him, and he calls timeout. And the announcers immediately are like, they don't have any timeouts. And if you know the rules of basketball, you know if you call a timeout and you don't have one, it's an automatic technical foul, all right? So the other team, two free throws and the ball back. Michigan loses by six. Still can't get over it. Still crying, right? So, I mean, we paid half the players. But anyway, okay, so, um, and I remember there, there was this scene and they zoomed in at Weber. Maybe you, you've seen this. I'm sure it haunts him even, but just this picture of him as the guy shooting the techno free throws and you can just see that look, right? I mean, he's just standing there and there's the North Carolina player in the background just rejoicing and he's just sitting there. And you can read it on his face. Like you feel it in that moment of just rejection and of loss and of anguish and of just, I can't believe this and all the world is watching me. I just want to crawl into a hole and die. Like I can't believe this is happening. That starts to tap into, I think, this reality. So this man, he travels as far and he's rejected and there's ultimate loss and he's just like, I don't know what to do. Like I I thought I had everything. I was at the moment of like success and I thought, I imagined him driving to Jerusalem and thinking, and maybe I'll just add a little bit of God to my life and then I'll have everything. And he's rejected and so now he's just dumbfounded and he's just like, I don't know what to do. And it's in this moment that the Lord gives a word and says, Philip, I need you to go. That the Lord sees this man, that the Lord cares deeply for this Ethiopian eunuch across cultural barriers, a man who had devoted his entire life not to the things of God, but to his career, and God sees him and he cares for him. And so let's look at these verses for a few minutes, and we get to see then Philip's response and God's heart for the Ethiopian through Philip, but also this, God's heart for our community. Because we live in a context, not just out there, but in here as well. Like there is loss and there is pain and we pursue things thinking it'll satisfy. And if we're honest, we're just sort of like discombobulated and disoriented. Like this hasn't quite become what I thought it would be. And Lord, what do we do? And we just kind of have it written all over our face. Like I'm just, I'm just stuck. And the Lord sees you and he wants to move toward you. The Lord sees your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers and he wants to use you to move toward them. I'm reminded of these, these words. We'll look at Philip as this ambassador, but 2 Corinthians 5 says this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And with the new identity comes a new mission. It says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Do you see that? If you're a Christian, whether you've been a Christian for a day or for, your, like for just decades upon decades, wherever you are in that mix, you are an ambassador for Christ and God wants to use you. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What would it look like for us to be a community that is winsomely imploring people, be reconciled to God? I want you to find life. There's nothing that you've done that can't be forgiven. Do you know this joy? Do you have this sort of peace? And so I want to look at these verses, and we'll run through them kind of quickly, but what can we learn from, we read this a few moments ago, but what can we learn from Philip's interaction and encounter, and what things can it encourage us in? And so for one, again, we go back to 26. For the first thing I'd point out to you, is like he actually listens to the Spirit. All right, so 26 says, uh, we're looking at this particular verse and it says, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert place. 
Think about it for a moment. Philip had just encountered incredible success in Samaria. I would be thinking, Lord, we gotta capitalize on this. We got a good thing going. All right, we're gonna, we're gonna build a new church here. We're gonna start a social media campaign. We're gonna get the word out. These people need to know, God, you're doing great things. And God says, yeah, I am, but I don't necessarily need you. I got something else for you. And he tells him, I need you to go. Go out to this old road leading out into the desert. No other detail, right? Just go. So for one, are we listening to the, the Spirit? And then verse 29, as we read a moment ago, he said, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot, which leads to the next thing, right? So are we listening to the Spirit? You won't, and I, like, I believe God does speak. I, the reality is I've never heard it in that sort of audible way, but I do know there are promptings, there are things where, like, Lord, there'll be those moments you're like, I need to go talk to that person, or I need to engage, or I need to, like, I'm bringing the trash cans in and seeing the neighbor, like, I should probably say hi, like, whatever it happens to be. Like, there are the, those moments that the Lord is gonna place something on your heart, and will you actually engage? And if you hear the audible voice as you're bringing the trash cans in, great, definitely listen. But also, pay attention. Ask the Spirit to bring people into your life that realize that every interaction you have, like, that's, that can be a divine appointment that the Lord has for you. Secondly, though, uh, he's willing to actually look foolish. Look at verse 30. There's this little detail here. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? There's nowhere in the text that it says the chariot had stopped. It hadn't, you know, wasn't stopping to just kind of fuel up a little ways or they were getting a snack. The chariot, for all we know, is moving and the Lord says go. So what does Philip have to do? All right, here we go. And so he's, he's now running to try and catch up to the chariot. If that wouldn't have felt foolish or awkward, I mean, come on, let's be, let's be real here. That would have been a really weird, no, Lord, you can't mean that one. That one's moving, and yet he's willing to look foolish. He's willing to look foolish for the sake of the gospel. He would rather have somebody have the opportunity to hear the good news than that man be destined to hell, and he's willing to go through the awkwardness and sort of push through it. And then it tells us as well that he's also dialed in. Not only does he listen to the spirit, he actually is listening to the eunuch. Like he's paying attention. This is a key thing for us as evangelists, all right? Oftentimes as the church, we come in and we go, here's what you need to know. And we don't actually start where people are at. We don't listen to their questions, their core concerns. We're not seeking to, we're just like, I got this stuff I gotta give and maybe I got trained in something and I just gotta spew it all out and then I can kind of check it off and be like, okay, I did my part. Philip is dialed in and he actually listens. And so the back part of verse 30 says, after he ran, he says, do you understand what you're reading? Because he saw this man reading something. So we start there. And then verse 31, I believe there's this call to sort of, he does seize the moment though. He's like, oh, this man's reading the scroll of Isaiah. And so he sees this opportunity that is there. And he said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? Now, if there's ever an opportunity for evangelism, somebody's reading the Bible and they're like, I just, I wish I had somebody to guide me. Like, yeah, man, I, I wish you did too. And you walk away, you've missed an opportunity, okay? <laughs> and so in this moment, he's like, I wish I had somebody to guide me. And I love even that language. I think that's a helpful instruction for us. Like a guide is somebody that, that goes along with you, right? Like, have you ever gone like whitewater rafting? Like you have a guide, you don't have somebody that takes your money and signs up and says best of luck and throws you out on the river. Like you have somebody that goes with you. And so even in this, it's this call to community. It says, hey, let's walk alongside together, all right? I need somebody to guide me. I need somebody that's sort of a player coach, not just somebody that's detached and just you know, spouting off do this or don't, don't do this. Like he's in it with him. 
And so he seizes the moment. How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Maybe a way to think about this is this idea here of God has been doing a work in this man's life, in the Ethiopian's life. And, and one of the ways you might think about it is that there's this ripening to the gospel. And I would encourage you, all right, um, I don't encourage you to walk around and be like, hey, are you a red apple? And that's not what I mean by this. But pay attention. Like, if there's people that are they're asking questions, they're maybe asking for prayer, they're opening up in maybe new ways that they haven't before, like, just try, like, hey, God is ripening that person for the gospel. And what does it look like to press in and to enter in and to say, uh, hey, can I pray with you? Can we study the Bible together? Because that's the next thing that happens. He actually engages in a Bible study. And so 32 to 34, it tells us the passage of scripture that he was reading. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shear is silent, who so opens not his mouth. And his humiliation, justice was denied him. You see it there, all right? And, the, and if we drop down to 34, he says, about whom I ask, does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? That something powerful happens when we open up the Bible together. Sometimes I think we want to make this more complicated than it actually is. You don't have to be the resident theologian expert. The power is in God's word. It is living and active. What if you simply took an opportunity to say, hey, would you like to study the Bible together? And we've got some resources. Come and talk to me. Like, there's some things uh, we can help you with in that if you don't know where, where to begin. All right. But what would it look like just to read the Bible one-to-one with somebody and see what God might do? But ultimately, what I love is this is verse 35. Philip gives him the gospel. Then Philip opened his mouth. I wonder how much more effective we might be if we just looked at that and said, yeah, I'm gonna, when the opportunity presents itself, like, I'm gonna open my mouth. I'm gonna be confident enough in who I am in Christ to open my mouth. And he opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, what he was studying, and he told them the good news about Jesus. Here's what I need us to see as we, as we bring this to a close. Beginning with this scripture. What was the scripture? It's Isaiah 53. And he's reading about a man. Imagine the scrolls open. And he's reading about there's a sheep that was led to the slaughter. One that has been rejected. One that's dealing with pain. Imagine him like the, the Ethiopian eunuch resonating with some of this. He knows what it feels like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to endure pain, humiliation. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. This is all pointing ahead to what King Jesus would endure. Do you imagine that the Ethiopian resonated with that? He had just been humiliated in Jerusalem. And then this line, I think the NIV gets at it better than this, because here it says, who can describe his generation? But another translation says, who can speak of his descendants? And for a eunuch, that would have leapt off the page. Yeah, I I got no family. I've given everything to my career. I've got no descendants to speak of. My name's not going to continue. I mean, particularly in that culture and that that place for the the continuation of a name. I mean, he would have been like, I I, I gave it all for this. It's just like end the story for me. Like, I I got nothing left. And beginning with this scripture. And I have to imagine that Philip said, oh. Look at the verses, not that they had verse markings there, but he would have been able to, like within the line of sight there, even see the verses that preceded it. Isaiah 53, five to six, to say, this one, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He begins to connect the dots and say, this longing you have to have a name, to have a legacy, to have purpose and meaning. He said, you pursued all these things thinking it would satisfy and have not embraced the grace of God in Jesus. But here it is. He died for your sin. He died for your brokenness. He's welcoming you into the family. You might have been rejected in Jerusalem by the religious leaders, but the God of the universe welcomes you in. He paid for your sin. He paid for your rebellion. He paid for you making career ultimate or whatever it happens to be. He paid for your idolatry and he willingly died. And then what if Philip took him from there just a few, a couple of chapters later and read this out of Isaiah 56? Same scroll, would have just kept reading. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Imagine for that unit, oh my goodness, I can get in on this. I can have a name that lasts forever. I can have an everlasting name that will not be cut off. He thought it was the end of the road for him. And here is the Lord Jesus through his servant Philip saying, I died for you. I want you in the family. You're welcomed. All of your pain, all of your brokenness, everything. I've paid for it all. I want to welcome you in. And so I ask you, how will you respond? Maybe you are that seeker here this morning you see the response of the Ethiopian eunuch in verse 36. It says this, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he got baptized. He made a decision in that moment. Baptism was this way to signify, I have died with Christ and I've been raised to this newness of life. It was a submission to King Jesus. It was this outward act that said, I'm all in. This notion sometimes of like, I'm, you know, I want to ask Jesus into my heart. Nothing wrong with that necessarily, but it does sometimes give the connotation of like, I've got my life and I'm just going to add a little bit of Jesus to it. But baptism was this way of signifying, no, no, I'm dead and I'm submitting everything to King Jesus. I'm all in. He is Lord. I am not. And so he submits. And I ask you, how will you respond I read that quote from Rebecca Pippert earlier. Let me read this one. She says, in Jesus' desire to be the Lord of our lives, he says, is it some little fetish of his? Why is it so important to him? Why should we want him to have control of our lives? Besides the fact that he deserves it because of who he is, he knows he is the only one in the universe who can control us without destroying us. Any other Lord you have, career, relationships, money, whatever it is, it will destroy you but Jesus can control you and cause you to flourish. No one will ever love you like Jesus. No one will ever know you better, care more for your wholeness, and pull more for you. You don't need 15 years of analysis to discover you are unrepeatable. The last breath Jesus breathed on this planet was for you. Jesus will meet you wherever you are and he will help you. He's not intimidated by past failures, broken promises, or wounds. He will make sense out of your brokenness, but he can only begin to be the Lord of your life today. Not next Monday or next month, but now. And the great and joyful paradox is that while he totally transforms us, he makes us more ourselves than ever before. The eunuch got in on this. Do you want in on this? Will you respond? And for us as a church, if you're a follower of Jesus, I'll conclude with this before we pray. I, want to, I brought this up last week. I want to encourage you in this, this mission, like 365 days, like every day, what are things that we can be doing? Who are three people that you can be praying for out of like kind of six networks 
that you live in and inhabit and what are five things that you can do for them. And if you're like, I don't know if I can read all that. Here's the thing, on your way out today, grab one of these, all right? They're actually magnets. But anyway, grab one, one of those. They're at the connections table. Just as a reminder, who can you be praying for? And so as we conclude, let me ask you, will you surrender? Same question I asked last week. Like, we gotta press into this. Will you surrender to Jesus? Maybe you need to give your life to him. Maybe you need to sign up to be baptized. Maybe you need to make a profession of faith today. If you want somebody to pray with you, as members of the prayer team, to seek one of us out in the back corners. If you got a need this morning, you want somebody to pray for you just about something you're struggling with, seek somebody out. You're meant to live in community. Will you surrender to Jesus and will you surrender to his mission? There's great joy to be found in this. Let me pray. I'll give you just a moment to reflect on this and then we'll continue in our, in our service. I'll give us some instruction in just a moment. But let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son on this amazing, incredible rescue mission and that you see our need and our brokenness, that like the Ethiopian eunuch, God, we are people that have pursued all sorts of things but you, that we have, when we're honest, we feel this rejection, this hurt, this pain, this shame we don't know what to do with. And we thank you, God, that you've made a way for us to experience wholeness and new life in you, Jesus, that you have died for our sins, that you have paid the penalty that we deserve, that you became sin for us, that in you we might become the righteousness of Christ. So Father, I pray for any here this morning that have not accepted this free gift that they would today, that today would be the day that they move from death to life. God, I would pray for any here that feel like, man, they're not ready for that, but they are sensing, God, you're at work. Would they keep coming back? Would they explore? Would they seek out others? God, we're meant to do this in community. And I pray for us as a church family, those of us that are followers of you by your grace, help us to live out this mission for your glory and for our great joy. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.